Hello and welcome to this edition of Biting Talk with Life Kitchens, presented by me, William Sitwell, Telegraph restaurant critic and food writer. Biting Talk comes to you in association with Life Kitchens, creating kitchens to be lived in that are planned around your life and the way you live it. And by the way, if you put down a deposit on a new kitchen before December the 18th, you'll find a very large Fortnum and Mason hamper blocking your front door before you can say, what is the difference between a larder and a pantry? On this episode, we talk to fiery Scottish chef Adam Handling. Has the devil, that's his description, not mine, mellowed now that he straddles a London empire? As the nation locks down, is the founder of Frog handling it? Get it? We'll also meet the only chef to hold a Michelin star for an Indian restaurant outside London. That's Akhtar Islam, whose Ophim in Birmingham is a very different establishment to the one he worked in as a teenager, his immigrant father's Bangladeshi curry house. Where does a born and bred Brummy get his Indian inspiration from? And what happens if you go into his very different type of Indian and ask for a chicken tikka masala, pilau rice, aloo gobi and a naan bread? Then we chat to rising star Harriet Mansell. Just days before the latest lockdown, she realised her dream to open a restaurant in her hometown of Lyme Regis on the Dorset coast. Robin Wilde, in an old pottery, takes inspiration from the local seafood and veg and so on, everything you can forage in those parts. So how is the former Great British menu contestant coping, having had to shut her establishment just as she was getting going? Then to cheer us up, or maybe drive us properly mad, it's over to the House of Haydari, where this week the biting talk mixologist is preparing for war, or Cold War. Stay tuned for more intelligence. But first, we welcome chef-owner of the new Dorset restaurant, Robin Wilde, to Biting Talk. You know, opening your first restaurant is obviously for all chefs. You know, it's one of the great kind of, you know, key moments in your life. And this has been a, you know, interesting, interesting journey. And we'll talk about your, your biog and all of your experience. But, you know, it's been a struggle for a lot of people in the business. But, you know, that, that dream and that ambition... You get tantalizingly close. It's bold to open in 2020. So we traded from Wednesday through till Saturday, and it was such a wonderful glimmer of opportunity to be to feel open and be open. I, I'm definitely still riding the high from uh, the kind of sense of completion because it was a long time coming, and there were a great number of delays already this year. So actually, if we hadn't had that opportunity to open the doors, I think I might have fallen into a bit of a deep, dark hole of depression. So I actually am very good. So yeah. So at the precise moment that people are listening to Biting Talk, you will have been open for two weeks, Harriet, and uh, you're going into delivery. Um, You've got, you know, quite an interesting elaborate menu. Is this something that you think will work because you're quite keen on your tasting menus? Is this something that you think will work with delivery? No, absolutely not. We will we will move away from the Robin Wilde offering, if you like, and we will we'll go home comfort food. Um Think things like hearty stews and you know seasonal vegetables and and make make like you know like Swede gratin venison stew that type of thing. Um, I think that will appeal a lot to people around here. And actually, we might find some new customers who we can then explain our tasting menu to <laughs> for after yes. lockdown. So let's chat about. I mean, first of all, Robin Wild. This is a this is a fantasy, isn't it? This name of yours, Wild with a Y. You're evoking you know, banditry and um, and the woods and foraging and all these sorts of things that people love to do down in the southwest. southwest. Um, I, I, I've no doubt you take inspiration from one of the people you work for, your local restaurateur buddy, former boss Mark Hicks. 
tell us about the name Robin Wilde. Is this something that you conjured up in your in your dreams as a child, or is this something that you fashioned recently? Well, frankly, when I moved back to this area last year, and I needed, and I started out at the pop up kitchen, I needed to to apply a name to you know the restaurant concept and also a website and so on. And I couldn't think I wasn't going to call it Harriet's Kitchen or something like that. So I basically had a chat with my friend, and I was struggling to find the name. And my friend was like, "Well, what is your style of cooking? What food do you do?" And I said, "Well, it's just a seasonal local." menu blah 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 and um they they said well dig further i was like well it's english food um and um they said to me well just think of something english and the first thing that came to mind was a robin i was like well robins are quintessentially english we love robins you know and then the wild was just a natural nod to the foraging side of things but also you know we do have a place nearby called uh, moncton wild it's spelt the the old-fashioned way y-l-d-e so yeah there's this kind of sense of place going on with that and and it was as simple as that and i detested the name about two weeks after you know getting it popped on some business cards and all the rest of it but then just went with it and you know now i that's that is the name of the restaurant so um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's the Robin Redbreast rather than the um, the mythical Robin Hood. Let's just put people right on that. Robin Redbreast, and then also there were natural developments. So I thought, well, it's quite nice that it is a kind of gender neutral name, and you know all the rest of it. And you know, someone said to me at one point, oh, it sounds like. Here, sounds like you're robbing the wild, and I was, I was like, yes, but that wasn't that wasn't the plan for the name. But yeah, I think the local newspaper latched onto that. And um, anyway, yeah, it's not ro- yeah, Robin, no G, <laughs> yes. as Steve Wright might say. So you're a local lass. You work for Mark Hicks, and then you spread your wings. You went off to Noma, and then you spent quite a lot of time cooking on super yachts. But what is it? Is there an elastic band that's brought you back to back to Dorset? Um, or did you always plan to open a restaurant in Lyme Regis, where you are now? I have always had the ambition to want to open a restaurant, and I didn't necessarily see the space in which it would, um, or, or the place in which it would be. Um, and I was busy um, on boats going around the world, you know, enjoying that and amassing experiences and so on. And then it, it hit a point where I had a really tough year at work, and um, I took a little bit of time out after a really tough job to just, um, you know, <laughs> go to Bali and um, do some yoga. Um, and, uh, and whilst I was out there, you know, I had some time to reflect and, and I just had this real, real draw to come home. And I thought, what am I doing? I need to just get home and see if I can start something up. That's that's where I want to be right now. I think having been quite nomadic for a number of years, there was a real desire to settle. And, and, and when I did, you know, dig into that thought, there was obviously nowhere I was going to go other than the place where I grew up. So... And and obviously, you know, I mean, seasoned restaurateurs like Mark Hicks have got suppliers that they've been using for for decades. There, you are starting up afresh with a new business. Um, have you had to literally get in the car and drive around and and make new contacts, or because you were from here and worked for Hicks for a while, um, you, you know, were these contacts sort of quite easy to come by? Yeah, like I mean, since I moved back in January, uh, January of last year, so uh, approaching you know two years ago now, um, I just started, um, yeah, just talking and, and driving around and calling people up, whether it was farmers, you know, supplies. I um, very, I, met, I went on a bumble date with a mushroom farmer, and uh, he um, 
he turned out to be a huge resource and he's become a fantastic friend ever since. So <laughs> what is a bumble oh date? Oh God, I just had come back and I, I was, you know, I had you know, a couple of years ago, I was single for the first time in a few years. I'd come out of a long-term relationship and I didn't know anyone really in the area because all my school friends and so on, they all actually, you know, lived all over the world. And I thought, oh, crikey, Harry, you better jump back on the old wagon. You know, you better try and go on a date at least. So I am, um, <laughs> it was just one of those dating apps. I'd never done this before. And I, I saw that he was a mushroom farm and I thought well that's right up my street so we went on a big forage and then drunk a load of whiskey together and frankly became really best friends so <laughs> okay so it shows my my ignorance I get the robin wrong and I think you're talking about some kind of uh, bumblebee but it's a dating yes. app but anyway Sorry. you it was a it was a far more productive date because he ended up being a supplier rather than uh, anything else so that's very useful so um now you started as a pop-up now you're in an old pottery workshop that you've kitted out. Um, is the menu a dream that was born at the pop-up or is it very different? Because you're doing you know, pickling and preserving and fermenting. Um, the menu that you've got now, does that reflect quite succinctly what you were doing when you were experimenting in April 2019, if you can call it that? Or is this a pretty new experience? You know, when people come and taste the food at Robin Wilde, Will they be re reminded of the pop-up or will they go, wow, this is very different? No, I think it's just an evolution of what occurred at Robin Wild 1. Um, uh, the current menu is, is similar. It's, it's an extension. There's there's a greater number of courses going on. Um, it's Yeah, it's, it's, it has certainly moved forward in, in, in some senses. Um, but the the idea of the produce and the ingredients and the kind of the flow through the menu is, is very similar to what was going on before. I mean, I hope it's progressed in a good way and and actually the period of time that we've got coming up um will enable us an opportunity to develop a really strong kind of opening menu 2.0 um because when we opened the doors two weeks ago it was crazy the project had been so delayed um and we had the i mean the builders are actually still in today so we we really had less than and less than what we wanted in terms of developing our opening menu so people will um recognize your name your face from great british menu was that a strategic thing to do? Because obviously, people who do shows like MasterChef, providing they do okay and don't <laughs> don't go down in flames, it can really help their their career. Was it a strategic move to do that show? Oh my gosh! I mean, it just happened. So, kind of two parts of the answer. I just had started the pop up kitchen last year, and about six weeks into operation, uh, one of the producers of the show contacted me, and you know, I, my jaw hit the floor. I said, "Why?" I did say to to Avril, I said, "I'm not sure why you're contacting me." To be honest with you, like, your show is full of Michelin star chefs, and um, I've just started a pop up. Um, I'm not at the caliber of, of chef who compete on that show. And she said to me at the time, "Harry, actually, no. We actually love the idea of showcasing the pop." up scene and emerging faces and we love the idea of yeah just representing some some new faces and um, particularly female chefs as well um and so she goes it will do you know it will do you no harm you want to set up a restaurant next year this is a perfect pr opportunity for you even if you you know don't make it very far you're still representing the southwest and um i was like well you've you've put in a very convincing argument i'll do it um, so i i mean i didn't i didn't then approach it with all the kind of everything i should have done because i was running a pop-up kitchen as a salt you know I, I ran every aspect of that business um and it was full on so you know not also realizing how much dedication um of time would be required to 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 get to do the great British menu um so i was very naive at that point but i then went and competed um and um 
and I had just the best time. I was exposed to so much and I, I loved, yeah, I loved the experience and, um, and, and, and yeah, and then it aired during lockdown of this year. And actually I was just so, um, so surprised and pleased at the kind of the positivity that had come out of it. You know, people really respected the fact that I'd competed on that show and, and then became excited about the restaurant. Um, so yeah, it wasn't necessarily strategic in terms of I didn't plan it, but as soon as it had been presented to me in that way, I thought, crikey. Yeah. And you really, you realized that was good. Yes. Well, listen, Harry, we must end it there. Um, there you are. You've represented the Southwest on telly. You're representing it now on the UK culinary scene. Um, uh, I wish you well in lockdown. People can get a taste of Robin Wilde if they seek you out on the interweb and uh, they can get a bit of uh, a more casual offering. And who knows? Maybe that'll uh, you'll, you'll do a little side menu when you when you come to reopen at Christmas. And we cross our fingers that that will happen. Um, Harriet, it's been great having you on Biting Talk. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Well, great to talk to Harriet Mansell there. And... Um, as we discussed during that fascinating interview, she was on Great British Menu. Now, my next guest on Biting Talk was also on that show. And, um, well, a fiend up in Birmingham has been going for uh, quite a few years now. And, of course, um, it's famous because it has a Michelin star, but that's not the most important thing about it. Um, but he's with us now, the founder of a fiend, actor Islam. Welcome to Biting Talk, actor. Oh, good morning. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's very nice to have you on. Now, I've been sort of slobbering over your menus. The one thing I think that really strikes me about the the ingredients of a theme, um, if I just read these out, I think people would struggle to think, oh, is that an Indian restaurant? Because we're talking about pink fur apples, soft-shell crab, Gressingham, Poussin, brassicas, plums, sorrel, Cox's apples, beetroot, turbot. You list those ingredients and people don't necessarily associate it with um, Indian food. Tell me about how you've managed to take all those wonderful ingredients and turn them into Indian and then still generate a menu that people can familiarise themselves with it, and it feels like an Indian restaurant. So how it is, I think, Afim, it's, um, it's a representation of my style of cooking. So I'm a Brummie brawn and bread. So it's a signature restaurant. So it is my food on a plate. So... I'm a, Brit- a Brummie born and bred, so British cuisine, uh, product and produce from our British Isles, very important for me. So that's where actually my cooking starts off. So we start off with the core ingredient and then we build on that by taking influences from the Indian subcontinent. So we, and, and one of the things that makes us very unique in that space and very unique worldwide is the fact that the way we present those flavors are always very, you know, very unique to us because as I say, you know, food is a, or the food that we do here is a reflection of my personality. So, and so what we tend to do is look at contemporary India, uh, look at how Indian food is, uh, uh, you know, regional cuisine is there at the moment. We also look, delve into its culinary heritage. So we, we, we go as far back as like 3000 years, looking into the earlier stages of how Indian food developed to more recent, and I'll say more recent in the last, say, thousand years or so, when we're looking at you know, the, the early influences from the Arabs, uh, the Persians, going more into the European influences that have come in from the, 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 the Portuguese, the French, uh, the British, obviously. And, and, and we look at how the food has actually developed. And it's almost like a continuation of that work. 
Yes, because it's it is interesting that because you you know you said you're Brummy born and bred, but your parents were Bangladeshi migrants. Your father opened a restaurant, um, a classic Bangladeshi style restaurant. Now, often you might find that the son of of someone who's created a restaurant like that who worked in that restaurant would traditionally evolve those dishes, but you've almost sort of put a stop to that and said, no, I'm not going to evolve those dishes. I'm going to look at the ingredients I have around me and then start again in terms of your culinary inspiration. Because, you know, having, I don't know whether you've lived in India, visited much. I've spent a lot um, of time just, there, yeah. Yeah. So do you go there on little culinary journeys? And, you know, where where are you physically getting some of these influences from? So that's exactly how it is. So it is about long drawn out trips throughout the Indian subcontinent. So we, we're moving from region to region, um, you know, we'd spend, say, up to three weeks at a time traveling from every state. So it's just eating our way through India. So you know, we may land in, say, Mumbai, spend a, two or three days there, then move off to, say, Calcutta, then off to Hyderabad, then off to Delhi. And it's just a constant, you know, just a, a whistle stops tour all around India. And just, we just eat, 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 meet people. Um, and a lot of the food that we do here as well, it's not about, food that say say is quite even popular in India. So we actually look into certain small niche niche communities in India that even say uh, people from that part of the world who hail from that part of the world won't necessarily uh, know about it or understand it because in India is in a, in a funny way. Um, people, you know, the communities that sort of live and work, uh, so live there, they t- tend to be quite very much wrapped around their own community. So a lot of the times I've got, you know, people I've worked with in the past where they're probably from North India and then coming into working with me, having to work with South Indian ingredients is totally a new experience for them. Yes. And and obviously, you know, there have been restaurateurs like Atul Kocha, who've pushed the boundaries and are focusing on new regions of India that, uh, you know, with his new restaurant and uh, relatively new restaurant in Mayfair, which, which, you know, would take people by what I would say a very delicious surprise. But because of the fact that there is still this lingering generic curry house uh, concept that, that, that exists in this country and serves many people very well, do you ever get people who come into a theme and just and look at the menu and go, I just want a chicken tikka masala pilau rice, some naan bread and aloo gobi. And then you have to show and you have to show them the door. Or they are they educated? <laughs> Do they know what they're going to expect? Because after all, you have got a Michelin star and we can talk about that. Yeah, we're, we're, we've been very lucky. I think people who walk through um, our door know that they'll be walking through to experience something totally unique. So they actually come looking for that. So I think it's a, it's a case of um, people seeking us out in order to have their perceptions questioned or their 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 palate pushed and and pulled into new territory that's why they come here so now atul's a a great friend of mine and it's fair to say he's been a wonderful support mechanism for me over my career he's been really supportive so yeah what he's doing at kanishka is highlighting the food from that particular region the indo-chinese uh, uh relationship in cuisine goes uh, in indian food goes back several thousand years so it's 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 really interesting to see that 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 diversity is being uh celebrated 
celebrated now. And and what all we do is we we go just that step further and and and, and put it into a completely new context. And 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 that's the thing. And like I say, my my biggest difference is from say the likes of people like Atul and so you know their training is very much from back in India. That's you know that's you are your environment or what you've been you know how you you were nurtured. Whereas you know for me. I never had that really. I, I was allowed to pretty much grow on my own and, and develop my own style. So that's why there's, there's, you know, it's hard to really relate it to anything else. Yes. Now, as I mentioned, you you won a, a Michelin star uh, just last year, 2019. Yep. Um, are you worried now that you're going to get sucked into that Michelin vortex where you've, you're going to have to maintain, keep that star and then fight to get a second have that glimmer of a dream of getting a third is it are you gonna you know push the boundaries of this tasting menu everything has to become fastidious and perfect and so on or are you just going to keep on doing what you're doing because it must be very difficult it's a wonderful thing getting a star but as we all know it can also be a horrendous burden yeah so so for me like we've we've always said you know the question always comes up you know i opened this restaurant in 2018 uh, late uh, in summer, sorry, 2018. So, you know, the, the initial question was, are you going for a star? And he, he, the, the response is very simple. I'm not going for anything. I'm just going to cook the food that I cook. And if that is what Michelin feel worthy of recognition, then then that's what I'll do. Uh, the, the, the pursuit of perfection is something that you know, it's very much part of my and my team's DNA. So every t- every every menu, we're pushing it further. Every menu, we're we're exp- uh, exploring new processes. Every menu, where it's all about making it better and better. So, if in a year's time, two years' time, three, maybe five, who knows? That Michelin decide that we are I- I- worthy of a second star, then. So be it, and and that's the way we're we're. But you know, we're not out to tick any boxes per se. But one of the boxes that we do tick is that constantly moving forward. Well, we'll watch that with uh, but with bated breath, actor. Um, right now, we're in lockdown. Your restaurant is closed. Um, are you doing deliveries? Are people going to get charred brassica and a chetanad sauce in a little plastic tub along with some? Dayboat fish, greens, and coconut milk. Are you going to simplify the offering? What's happening? So what we've done? We've, I started off um, at the back end of uh, the last lockdown, or the first one, should I say? And uh, I hope the second one is the last one. Um, so yeah, at the, the end of the first one, we got a lot of requests from our guests to to introduce an at home service. So the, we we introduced one, but it was very much built around home cooking. So. I, I think you know there's a lot of restaurants do it, trying to send home uh, what they do at the restaurant into little packages, and you know ultimately it, it, it may work. In my opinion, it d- doesn't really work. You know, if I want restaurant style food, I want to eat it at a restaurant. But if I'm at home, I want good, wholesome home cooking, and that's what our service is built around. So I've, I set up a separate business called Actara at Home, which, um, you know, we've got three products at the moment. We do a curry box, which is you know, incredibly, doing incredibly well, where pretty much every Michelin star chef throughout up and down the land has enjoyed and they've loved it and they've all been so supportive. They've, they've come out publicly and tweeted about it and everything else. But that's built around traditional home cooking. So it's not restaurant or you're not curry that you'd get at your local curry house either it is tethered to 
home regional home cooking so as it would be cooked in someone's home so that goes that does really well and then we do a sunday roast kit where you get a kilo of aged sirloin with all the gear that goes with it um, and that came about because i saw the last lockdown the terrible examples of Sunday roast that people are putting up. And believe it or not, Sunday roast is my favorite meal of the week. I, 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 on a, often I'll have it more than once. Um, you know, we normally have it on a Wednesday and a Sunday. Um, so for me, sun, the Sunday roast is something quite, it's quite precious to me. So it was really important that I put together a kit that, and it's very good value for money. It's only 60 pounds and you get a kilo of beef, you've got all the trimmings. There's enough for like six people and leaves you loads more for sandwiches throughout the week. Listen, actor, that's all we've got time for. Um, anyone who wants to um, envelop themselves in your fantastic um, cuisines should go to Afim, look you up on the internet and uh, order away. Best of luck in the next few weeks. Uh, it's fantastic having you on the show and uh, wonderful to chat with you. Akhtar Islam. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to welcome Adam Handling to Biting Talk. Hi, Adam. Hiya, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Well, we are now in the midst of lockdown. Uh, you and I have been chatting over the last few months here, there and everywhere about business. And I suppose one of the exciting things for you is that Haim, your at-home delivery service, has been generating about as much revenue as one of your single restaurants. So you must feel, you know, not as despondent as some chefs might feel. I have to admit, I feel very lucky. Um, we did a huge post to say, like, people, please don't cancel your bookings. Or if you do so, just put the same value onto Haim and let us cook for you at home. And I think just yesterday alone, we had 400 orders um, nationwide. So it definitely keeps the team busy. Yes, that is, that is extraordinary. Because I think one of the challenges is that People go to restaurants because they want to have a particular style of restaurant food. And I think what's interesting and bold about Haim, your at-home delivery, is that, let's face it, your prices are quite punchy. Um, you've got a, you know, 305 quid for two people menu, dine-in style, 110 for two. People might, when they think about home delivery, be rather taken aback. So it's encouraging that people really are thinking about the fact that you can have some sort of a restaurant experience at home. Oh, for sure. It is a little pricey, but value for money wise, you know, you get whole lobsters, you get whole beef fillets, you know, you get caviar and all that sort of stuff. I wanted to do hey, a home delivery where it wasn't so much the same as everyone being at the, the bog standard affordable easy food. You know, if so, you just order from Deliveroo or Uber Eats and just get bog standard food. I wanted to continue the reputation of the restaurant and give people, you know, that part of luxury of why we go out and eat in these sort of restaurants. Yes. Now, your little empire based across London. People will know you from uh, Frog and so on. Now that all the restaurants in the UK are, are shut and yours are shut, are you doing any specific deliveries from any of your restaurants, let's say from the Cadogan Hotel or Ugly Butterfly in Chelsea, or is it all now for the next four weeks about Haim? It's all about Haim, and it gets produced in Covent Garden, um, in, in the Frog there, which is really good because for mental health, uh, the chefs, you know, sitting in a room on their own with uh, nobody else around them because they flat share with strangers. You know, they're now in the kitchen with their family bashing on. Um, and yeah, they're producing it with us. And it, business is normal for us, really. Yes. Now, my first guest on Biting Talk today uh, was Harriet Mansell, who's just opened Robin Wilde down in the southwest of the country. And she's felt a sort of elastic pull to take her back to the southwest all those amazing ingredients, and it's quite a foodie destination these days. 
You hail from Scotland, but you've got your businesses in London. You call it, you know, British food with a sort of London twist. The, the, the ingredients you can get from that part of the world. Is there an elastic band that's going to drag you back to Scotland? Or are you down south forever? I love, I love Scotland. I'm super proud to be Scottish. The products are amazing. People are lovely. And of course, yes, one day I would like to open a place up in Scotland. But the one thing about me starting my group is I really want to be able to touch them all and help them out and, and be there whenever they're in need. If I then branch out to somewhere like Scotland, that's a whole day to get there sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? I, I, I want to make sure that my London empire is perfectly stable first. So a retirement job. <laughs> that, or, that or two years. That or two years time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And but do you feel do your friends, family, parents, do they sort of look at you and go, come on, we miss you? Or do you feel that you are well and truly and firmly established in London and that's where your centre of gravity now is? My centre of gravity is definitely in London for sure, yes. But uh, of course, my friends and family and actually quite a lot of people that order Haim, you know, I would say probably uh, just over a third of it goes to Scotland. Oh, um, wow. So it's, 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 it's really good. And yeah, I've always been very proud of being Scottish. One day it'll happen, I'm, but in Edinburgh, I assume. Now, when you, in your formative years, you know, you were cooking in various restaurants in, and in Scotland at Glen Eagles particularly, um, how was the food when you, when you were there? Because some of those old hotels have a certain sort of reputation of a certain kind of style of hotel food. Um, were you in there with your eyes on stalks or were you thinking, really, is this as good as it gets? What was your experience there? What were you thinking? When I went to Glen Eagles, I was 15 when I walked through them doors and 16 when I started my apprentice. So for me, I, you know, I was a fuss eater. I didn't really know what good food was all about. So going there in a place where, you know, they're, they're really working hard and in a very strict environment, shall we say, um, it was very cool to see. But it wasn't until six months later whilst doing the job, I was inspired and inspired by the flavor. And then that's where I kind of like sculpted my career and, and, and my passion for probably really rich, buttery food. Obviously, it's changed now. But back then, it was very French orientated with Scottish ingredients. Um, yeah, we learned the foundations straight from the source, I guess. Scottish food just bubbling in butter. 100%, which is delicious. <laughs> I just, what do you, I mean, are you still cooking in butter? I mean, I do find it frustrating. You see chefs all the time. I was watching Marcus Waring putting a recipe on Instagram the other day, you know, lay, lathering this poor piece of fish and loads of butter. I had a takeout from a fantastic restaurant in London, which was delivered to me. It was mainly butter with a bit of pasta. Um, <laughs> are you still a, a slave to butter? I mean, I sometimes feel there's a sort of hint of laziness with great respect to these wonderful legends, you know, just getting these ingredients and then, you know, just letting the butter do the work for them. Yeah, we hardly ever use butter. The only time I use butter is when I'm eating my chicken butter. But other than that, it's all, it's all very steamed or it's very olive oil. I, I like light food. There's no doubt about it. I like luxurious food, but I don't like to feel like I'm going to be sick and I'm getting the fetal position and in the taxi on the way home with my stomach cramped. You know, I, I, I want to finish my meal really full, but really happy. And I want to be able to sleep well. So yeah, for me personally, I don't use a lot of butter at all in anything, no cream and no gluten actually either. Well, I, I like the sound of this, Adam. This is um, feeling me with joy because I think sometimes, you know, people feel you need to have that restaurant experience. and then, But actually, you know, people dine out more and more these days and you just can't. There's only so much butter people like me can actually shove into our faces without feeling we're going to sort of collapse with a sort of cholesterol overload. 100%. Um, 
How are you as a chef these days in the kitchen? You've worked for some very fiery characters. Uh, are, are you a calm man? Are you a man who uh, you know, loses his Scottish temper occasionally? Tell us, tell us frankly, Adam. <laughs> tell us, be be honest. <laughs> I, I, I've definitely changed from this from the the sixteen years of being in the kitchen. I would say I'm probably my most mellow now than I ever have been. It does baffle me slightly how some of the teams still work for me now when I was the devil. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm I'm very calm, and I feel like it's it's down to a leader. If you need to lose your temper and go absolutely crazy because the chefs aren't doing things properly, you're not doing it properly. You're not teaching them. You're not inspiring them. You're not motivating them. So at the end of the day, you just look yourself in the mirror. You got your own. You got yourself to blame. And when when you were, as you put it, the devil, was that an instinctive thing or had you learnt it from some pretty poor mentors? <laughs> it was definitely how I was trained. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a style of uh, of acting in the kitchen that, um, well, it's supposed to be out of fashion, but I wouldn't, I'm not sure it, it is entirely. Yeah, I, I think it should be out of fashion. But again, I agree with you there. I know it's in quite a lot of other restaurants. Yeah. And... Um, it's obviously been a nightmare year in, in hospitality. Are you seeing youngsters uh, knocking on your door and trying to get work? Are you worried about the, the new generation of talent emerging? I am worried. I, I've seen we get a lot of CVs come in asking for jobs, and you know, sadly, we just have, we can't hire anyone at all. But not just young ones, you know, real professional ones too. Now that's just going to put a, a massive switch in the in the market. One, it's going to reduce salaries going down the line because the demand of staff are there. But secondly, it's going to push all the new ones out. You know, no one can really afford to uh, invest in time and invest in money to train up these people um, as much as we used to do. So I think for the new generation, it's going to be very hard to get a new kitchen. So you see, because obviously, you know, it is where the new talent emerges. And if you can't, as you say, if salaries get deflated, if chefs who are you know, trying to find work from restaurants that are closed are, are, are going to have to take you know, cuts in salary, then you're going to find it hard to invest in these people. I mean, that does sound like quite, quite a worrying scenario that you're painting there. Yeah, it definitely means that, you know, 10 years down the line, I think the industry is going to be um, a little bit, I don't know, scarier than it is now. Yes. And it's these effects that people don't really think about, actually, because you know, the month lockdown that we're currently enduring, in addition to all the other problems, um, it'll take, as you say, it could take several years for people to actually see the the true harmful effects that it's done to our food culture. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, looking into 2021, can you make plans? Are you worried there's going to be these perpetual lockdowns? Do you speak to your fellow chefs in, in hospitality? Do you check Twitter to see what uh, great Kate Nichols is saying for Hospitality UK. Uh, I do, I do. Um, but, you know, I don't really, I don't know this sounds really bad. I don't really care what what, what, what people <laughs> think is going to happen. Because, you know, with this ridiculous government that we have, even if we think something's going to happen, they just, you know, go around the other way and smack us in the ass. Um, so there's no really any point worrying about that stuff. In terms of my expansion, 100%. I have, I have a two more places on the cards um, for 2021, and I'm still going full steam ahead. If the government doesn't put the country into more lockdowns, they won't be postponed. If we go back into normality as much as we possibly can, my group will continue to thrive. So, um, yeah, in terms of all the negative and, and, and all the re- stupid, stupid politicians saying things such at the last minute and affecting people like us in our, in our careers, I'm just not listening. Okay, no, that sounds very sensible. That's the, the way to stay sane 
stop listening and just 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 run your businesses until I don't know till the the COVID marshals turn up and tell you what's what. Exactly. Go to the gym, think it's Boris, and start boxing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you unwind in the gym. Um, how do you relax in the evening? Uh, do you cook for yourself? Are you fed up with food by the time it's sort of seven o'clock in the evening? Are you cracking open a bottle of wine how does adam handling relax oh yeah adam handling definitely relaxes with alcohol um he'll have he'll have a <laughs> bottle or some cocktails and that sort of stuff um just yesterday actually i ordered one of the haim the haim dishes just to see how it was and i, I smashed that on the sofa on my own it was a, <laughs> it was a meal was for that, four <laughs> really that must have got back that was a sort of 600 pound menu for four oh, eaten was, by yourself <laughs> it no it was super lovely i just wanted to check it out and just make sure that it was all going to be great before um for the guests that saw it. But yeah, no, I love going out. I love socializing in the industry. You know, all I know is food and alcohol. I don't know anything else. Um, so I, I, love to, I love to submerge myself around all of that, even when I'm not working. Fantastic. He loves food and alcohol. He's submerged and he's not listening. <laughs> Adam, it's absolute joy to catch you on Biting Talk. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Adam Handling. Uh, fantastic guy he is and uh, looking forward to trying some of his food should it w- it wing its way to uh, me down here in Somerset where we are recording Biting Talk Britain's liveliest food and drink show and no show ever ends without the legend that is Farhad Haydar and if it does end without him let me know um, as if I wouldn't notice myself here he is the man himself the Biting Talk mixologist welcome to Biting Talk Farhad Haydari. thank you William it's great to be back on now, listen, uh, we're in lockdown. We're in the middle of it now. Well, we're not in the middle, we're in the midst. It could be the middle, it could go on forever. Who's, we don't know these days what happened, what's quite what's going on. Um, if there's one thing that sustains quite a few of us, and Adam Handling wasn't backward and coming forward to say that the two things that keep him going are food and drink, and he's not easing up on the booze, cocktails can help us. Um, I was looking, you, you, you kindly, you know, occasionally you send me a briefing note, a so that I know what it is I'm about to receive, and may I be truly thankful for it. Your cocktail this week is called a Cold War Easier. It is, because we're entering a new Cold War, you see, William. We're going into lockdown, and we're in lockdown. But it feels like, uh, you know, it's lockdown Mark Two. Yeah, I keep hearing that. But listen, a Cold War Cold War Easier or Cold War, War Easier, it's highly... I mean, I, I'm not going to be able to say it when I've drunk it. I can't even say it before. Uh, it doesn't make a difference. It's a delicious cocktail. It's a lovely short cocktail that's got a bit of punch to it. And hopefully it'll make this bit of lockdown a bit easier. Hence, okay, ergo. Okay. Yes. I get it. I get it. So you're going to ease us in to the spirit of Cold War, if not actual war. Um, I gather we need an old fashioned glass, some orange zest and a few other things. Farhad, I had the floor is yours. Thank you, William. We're going to need vodka, 30 milliliters of that. That's going to go into our shaker, our trusty shaker, already filled with uh, distilled, well, not distilled water. It'll be water that is uh, uh, purified and, and clean and not London water, as it were. 10 milliliters of orange liqueur goes into that. Then we're going to add 10 milliliters of maraschino liqueur, 15 milliliters of Pinot Noir, red wine. Of course, Pinot Noir is a lovely red wine, which doesn't get as much usage as it should in cocktails, but it takes a beautiful turn here. 10 milliliters of freshly squeezed lime juice as well, lemon juice actually. And then we're going to add some pure sugar syrup. 
uh, you could use the old uh, measurement of three to one water to sugar. And then, of course, our trusty Angostura bitters, William. We're going to shake all that and then fine strain it into, as you just mentioned, an old fashioned glass with either some of the aforementioned ice or just a, one, one of those big block ices that you see at some of the better bars around the world. And boom, that's going to ease us out of this out of this uh, new lockdown that we're in. <laughs> ease me into a coma. Um, <laughs> tell me about ice. How do you keep ice? Have you got some fancy ice machine? Do you store ice in those beautiful sort of, uh, uh, you know, cylindrical packs? Uh, or do you just have a normal plastic uh, ice tray well, in your freezer? Well, as you know, William, na- nowadays with the uh, advent of the gel uh contraptions for as ice trays you can create ice of any kind of shape uh, or form so uh, i have a contraption that has a, a gel encasing and you can create a nice block ice but yeah you want it to be from uh, from spring water or at least uh, uh, water that has been uh, clarified a bit uh, rather than uh, tap water and uh, it won't dis- it won't disturb the drink great well as you say boom just say one more boom for us Bada boom, bada bing, bada done. (laughs) Right, enough of that. Farhad, thank you so much for being on the show. We'll see you again next week. Looking forward to it, William. All the best. Thank you, Farhad. God bless the House of Haydari and all who rock her unsteady vessel. My thanks also on Biting Talk this week to Harriet Mansell, Akhtar Islam and Adam Handling. Now, if Farhad's cocktail was a little too left field for you, how about a bottle of Fuedo Arancio Nero 2019? It's long, it's lush, it's velvety, it's just plain essential, and it's just £11.75 at williamshousewines.com. Biting Talk comes to you with Life Kitchens, whose Waterloo showroom is a treasure trove of creativity under those railway arches in London. During lockdown, what better than to dream of kitchens? Follow them on Instagram for inspiration or enjoy a virtual tour at life-kitchens.co.uk. That's it for this week's episode. Please do subscribe, rate us and sleep easy with the news that Biting Talk is a Frontier production. I'm William Sitwell. Goodbye.